A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. D. Rodrigue. Jesse Brown. Writer for The Walrus Magazine and PhD candidate at the Rotman School of Business. Non-practicing lawyer. Non-practicing lawyer. Terrifyingly qualified human being. Uh, it's nice to meet you on the show. <laughs> Thank you. It's great to be here. Today we're going to be talking about the new Q. We'll talk about uh, the Globe's recent coverage of uh, the Colton Bushy case and some other issues about indigenous people in the justice system. And uh, we'll talk about that thing I wrote for The Guardian. Yeah. Welcome to Candleland Shortcuts. Thank you. This episode of Candleland Shortcuts is brought to you by Andrew Arsenault, Julia Duncan, Grayson Romeliotis, Adrian Korskaden, Carson Crothers, Aiden, Richard S. Levy, and Graham Hnadiak. Graham, why did you decide to be awesome? Because... Canada's institutions and media need their feet held to the fire, and you bring that to the forefront. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks. You're in school. I am. D. Forever. And you were briefly a practicing lawyer. I was. But you are doing a bit of uh, freelance journalism. I am. So you might need to invoice. I might need to. May I recommend a product for you called FreshBooks? You may. Um, it is the product of a proud Canadian company. They are the founding sponsor of the show, and they're, they're just the easiest way to get it done. You want to just get it done and not have to worry about accounting and save time so you can do all these other things that you are doing, then FreshBooks is the solution for you. They have recently rebuilt the whole thing. It is just a breeze to use. It's actually kind of fun to use. You can track your time. You can file your expenses. It is the accounting department for independent contractors, small business people, freelancers, and small businesses themselves that can't afford an accounting department. They will do that job for you. Check it out for free for 30 days. When you do decide to become a customer, and I think if you need something like this and you try it, you're going to become a customer, tell them that Canada Land sent you and you will be doing this show a favor. And D, the show is also brought to you by our patrons. We are in the middle of our annual crowdfunding drive. And we have like 500 new patrons and we've hit a bunch of our goals. And it's thrilling to know that this model we have works. But we, we dedicate a month to this and only a month. So I'm, I'm going to talk to some people who haven't 
decided to support us yet. Because, and this may shock you, there are some people who listen to the show who find me irritating. What? I know, right? There are some people who listen to the show who find me annoying, who don't agree with me, or who agree with me but find me annoying. And I think that in a lot of cases, that is holding them back from supporting the show. They don't want to give money to this guy who kind of bugs them. But it's not just about you. It's not just about me. And I want to speak to those people and say, first of all, I totally understand your position. And I relate. I irritate the hell out of myself sometimes. But unlike you, I don't have a choice but to spend time with this person. It is so deliberate to be listening to this podcast. It's not like it's on public radio and there's my faces on billboards everywhere. Like you chose out of thousands of podcasts to spend time with this person who might be irritating you. So obviously there's just some value, even if it comes along with irritation. Even if you're annoyed, you're choosing to be annoyed. So we, we've got like a weird little thing going. Me and you. Medicine doesn't always taste good, but it can be good yeah, for I you. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's medicine. Maybe you just have some weird thing that you like to do to yourself by subjecting yourself to my voice. I don't know what it is. Or maybe you find that some of the things we do or that the company does, apart from me, are worth it for you to spend time with and read our stuff and listen to our stuff. So I think you should still support the show, but I want to give you a way of voicing that it is sort of a crying call, voicing that there's a little bit of dissonance in your decision to support us. So... This week only, to people who find me irritating but decide to support Canada Land, deduct three cents from your monthly patronage. If you're going to give a dollar, give 97 cents. If you're going to give five bucks, give 497. And I will know because you deducted three cents that that's the constituents of people who are still not necessarily sold. They don't want to give like a full endorsement and you'll still get whatever reward was at the $5 level, $10 level, $7 level. We'll, we'll still honor that, but you'll be letting me know something and I'll keep that in mind. Please go to patreon.com slash Canada land and, uh, and help us out. If this is a part of your life, figure out what it's worth to you and, uh, and help us keep doing it. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm gonna recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you wanna take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1, try it now, and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. That's Jim Cuddy and the many versions of Blue Rodeo. And why you gotta watch out for those keyboard players. That's Adam Cohen on cutting an album with his dad, the musician and poet Leonard Cohen. Not as dark as you might think. I'm your new host, Tom Power. You're listening to Q. All right, let's get this wagon wheel rolling. So that's the new host of Q there, getting his wagon wheel rolling. Yeah. What do you think? Good old Canadian boy. First week uh, of Tom Power as the new host of Q, the first guest was the son of Leonard Cohen. Yeah. 
on uh, CBC's flagship arts show, uh, the producer of uh, Leonard Cohen's new album. Other guests announced uh, Ewan and Seamus Curry of the Sheepdogs, Sam Roberts, Thomas Dolby. There's a whole thing on Thomas Dolby. Uh, Tegan and Sarah, Billy Bragg, Blue Rodeo. Do I need to say it? Where are the brown people? <laughs> they're gone now. <laughs> they're, they're not. No, it's not yeah. actually fair. We did some cherry picking there. Yes. There are um, some artists of color and they, yeah. you know, there is a focus with Tom Power on music and that music seems to be a lot of white performers and a lot of like folk roots, which is what Tom Power is, is Has about himself. background in, yeah. I'm going to refrain from opining about this just like I will eventually, but right now I, I, I just want to kind of do a bit of a close analysis here of the verbiage about how the CBC and the media are presenting Tom Power, how they're selling Tom Power and how they sold Shad. Okay. A CBC executive said of Shad, he is an extremely bright and accomplished artist, and I think the audience will be completely charmed by him. Fast forward to Tom Power, where uh, another CBC executive said they did a bunch of research on why Shad wasn't working, and that research told them that listeners wanted Q to, quote unquote, be more Canadian. Q's new executive producer uh, said of the Tom Power era, we started with a clean slate. Uh, The CBC also said that they are going to now have a tighter focus and that they are refreshing their focus. They're more focused under Tom Power. And Tom Power himself said that he wanted to now have a show that speaks to all Canadians. Is that implying that it didn't before? I think that's the implication. You have to understand, like, all of this is very carefully considered when they're deciding how to, you know. So, yeah, that seems to be compatible with the whole, like, oh, research says the show needs to be more Canadian, and Tom Power says we want to have a show that speaks to all Canadians. What is being Canadian? That's a very good question. And you would think that when you say we want to speak to all Canadians, that you're actually expanding you know, but in fact, Q seems to be in, in its editorial decisions contracting, narrowing the focus. Yeah, as they are like, we're now really about music. The kind of music is different, right? Let's look at how the press is talking about Tom Power versus how they talked about Chad. Okay. Simon Haupt uh, writes about media for the Globe and Mail. The headline for one of his Chad pieces was uh, Q: Why is Chad so bad? It was not a very kind piece. No. I don't know that it was like, I mean, you know, Shad wasn't working out. And that, that has to be acknowledged as we compare these things. But here, here's what Simon Haupt said. He said, seven months in, it's clear that Q still needs a strong hand at the wheel. And he, he described himself, he imagined himself as Shad's hockey mom who was watching her kid make mistake after mistake and like, oh, why didn't you get that right? You should have done this. You should have done that. And uh, he contrasted Shad to a fill-in host, uh, Jill Deacon, who by contrast Simon wrote, is intellectually engaged with the material. Okay, now here's what Simon Hupp wrote about Tom Power after Tom Power's first show. The headline was, uh, CBC Radio's Q begins with an intelligent debut. I noticed that as well. Focus on the word intelligence. Yeah. Power is in his element here, a quick-witted charmer who has an easy rapport with the guest. He described the first episode of, as muscular, intelligent, smartly managing expectations, and intentionally low-key. He wrote, as exorcisms go, it was mighty jaunty. How familiar are you with the concept of the glass cliff? I have never heard of that before. So it refers to a phenomenon where if something is struggling, a company is struggling, more often you will have a female CEO being brought in when a company is struggling. Uh And then if they are able to turn things around, great. But if they aren't, they're usually preceded by a white male. So this is, uh, in contrast to the glass ceiling, this is the glass cliff. Yeah. So you're given the chance, but the chance is not 
as good of a chance as other people would get. This is a position that would be offered. The white male CEO would be like, no, that's too dangerous. But if you're the white female CEO who has not gotten a CEO offer, and this is the only one you get, you take it if you want to advance. But you're put into a more precarious position in terms of leadership and having to prove your leadership under more difficult conditions. Set up for failure. A little bit. I've noticed this trend at the CBC. I was uh, a regular on a show called The Point where they brought in a guy named Armour Halim, who, like Shad, had no radio experience. He was a TV host. With much fanfare, they said, we've got this wonderful new host. He's, And they always describe it as like, we've done an outside hire. When they're looking for something kind of new and they're shaking it up, they bring in diversity from outside the building, maybe because they don't have people within the building. And we did journalism that showed that CBC is half as diverse as the rest of Canada. But this isn't somebody who they've been investing in and training. They make an outside hire and they're like, look at what we got here. We got this wonderful person from this other world who's a rapper or who's a TV host. And then if it doesn't work out. They go back. They go back. To the internal, yeah. which is what you see in the company. So they often they'll bring in the outside minority or woman hire. And then if that doesn't work out, revert back to the age old pattern of a nice white male in charge. And this isn't always true. I mean, Matt no. Galloway was somebody who cut his teeth at CBC and, and had lots of years of, of uh, in-house experience. And he, he rose to that job. Yeah. And then uh, it doesn't always happen that way. But it, I think that there is almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy where like there's casting at play here. So when they were like, we want different and we want cool, let's get a black guy and a rapper who has no, and like surprise, surprise, like Chad didn't know how to host a, the grinding process of a daily radio show like that though it's worth saying that some of his interviews at the end like he might have gotten there you know um, but you don't have the luxury of time yeah per se i know a little bit about how horribly they treated him at the end uh they were trying to manage the word that he was going to be replaced but it got leaked and then he was like shuffled off really quickly out the back door and it was like a weird messy sudden thing in the middle of the summer and then what they did with him is the same thing they did with Sukiyin, where they kind of like sign him up to some kind of nondescript development deal so that he still got some skin in the game at CBC and doesn't talk shit about them on the way out. So it's like, oh, he's still part of the CBC family, but, you know, that's it. It's not going to be like a bigger show, right. you know. And then when they have to get like, okay, we need to like bear down and get serious here and we'll do a low key thing. We'll get back to our roots. And what does that mean? And I think the Tom Power is great, you mm -hmm. know, but... Uh, it is what it is. I've seen this pattern where they bring in, well, you bring in a minority, and if it doesn't work out, try another one. You know, we can we can go back to back. You can have two black characters on a show, you know, but yeah. sometimes it's, you know, we tried, it didn't work. Let's go back to what's familiar. I'm not sure if that's what to play here. And I know he's a great host and has a history um, at the CBC of excellence, but. I think that there's like a larger issue just for uh, Canadian arts because this is the CBC's flagship show and there are decisions made about who to celebrate, who to expose to a wider audience, who gets this. This is the big spotlight that CBC has to shine and they've already made some choices about that. And I think that they're just trying to play to Tom's strengths of like you want to hear the host relating to the music that he loves. Yeah. But that's a specific thing. The concept of relating to what he loves is interesting. So I'm an employment I was an employment lawyer and I study hiring and to some extent and we tend to hire the people who are like us. Yeah. It's not surprising. It's human nature. We gravitate towards people who are like us. And so, you know, in the law you they did a lot of behavioral interviews. So I remember I was both an interviewer and interviewee. 
And I would go in and I was able to talk about shoes or hockey or some other pursuit that was similar to the people who um, were interviewing me. And it was I could tell right away if I was going to get an interview or not. Sure. And I think my ability to navigate the space of white interests uh, <laughs> was helpful for me. So I went to McGill. I'm an ultimate frizzy player. I sing a cappella. If you just read me on paper, I sound like a really nice Ivy League. Yeah. Harvard sweater wearing kind of person. How's your golf game? I'm more of a pitch and putt person, less of an actual golf person, but we tend to hire and to gravitate towards those are similar when really we should be looking beyond similarities. Yeah. There's like a a process by which we kind of like sniff each other's butts and see if we like similar interests, similar... It's human nature, but we have to be aware that our human nature leads us to everybody looking the same and... To maintaining a lot of bias. Yeah. Be more Canadian. That's what the research said. Am I Canadian? Do I count? D, this is uh, something we call duly noted. It's your first time here. We're going to just duly note some stuff. Okay. Sound good? Sounds great. Something happened that was really bad yesterday in Labrador. Reporter named Justin Brake, who's with this website, The Independent, uh, has been sort of embedded with this protest, this protest of this massive hydroelectric dam where local indigenous communities uh, are responding to uh, an external report that says that their water is going to get poisoned with mercury if this goes forward and there's some subsistence hunters and it's just a bad scene for these communities. And this reporter is with them so that he could report on it. And the RCMP are getting ready to round up and arrest everybody there. And they included the name of this reporter in the injunction. It's the kind of thing that is kind of getting looked over by a lot of people saying, oh, well, you know, if he's in there, he's trespassing, he's with the protesters. This is not something that happens. There are many occasions where journalists are in places that technically the law would not allow them to be because they're covering. And this might be the first time this has ever happened. And I think that every time the bar gets lowered or at least something unique happens or rare happens in, in, in the case of the law cracking down on journalists, we have to make a big deal about it so that journalists can actually be able to cover the things that they need to cover. And Justin left, he, he basically left a story that he was covering so that he wouldn't get arrested. And that scares the hell out of me. And it should scare the hell out of every journalist in this country. That night, apparently a deal was reached between the indigenous communities and the people behind the massive hydroelectric dam. So that's where that stands and these arrests don't look like they're going to go forward. But the fact of the injunction itself is something that I wanted to duly note. Noted. What do you got for us? So I was watching the third debate of the U.S. presidential election with some interest. And at the very end, when Hillary Clinton was talking about Social Security tax and the fact that hers would go up and Donald ta- uh, Donald's, as long as he didn't try to get out of it, dodging his taxes again, And then he piped in with such a nasty woman. Mm -hmm. And that struck a chord with me and the women of Twitter who blew up Twitter with nasty women memes and comments. Um, In particular, I study stereotypes. And there's something called the stereotype content model. And essentially, when we meet someone, we judge them primarily on two dimensions. We judge them on warmth and we judge them on competence. Women are generally characterized as warm and less competent and men competent and less warm. And in the workplace, if you are a woman and you're competent, you lose warmth. So that's why there's this whole focus on likability. Donald Trump is pretty much the most unlikable person I've ever seen, 
but no one's talking about his likability and that he has to appeal to people. Whereas with Hillary, a lot of articles focus on the fact that she's not relatable, she's not likable. And it just made me think about the warmth competence paradox. I just know it just struck a chord with me because so many competent women basically by demonstrating competence are seen as bitches. There's the bitches get shit done, right? That's a, right. a common motto. And it's actually not true for a woman to be seen as confident. She has to portray both competence and warmth. Right. Whereas if a man is simply just competent, he is seen as confident. The differences in which these two dimensions can really play out in gender dynamics and in this example in particular. Duly noted. One last thing. So I'm noting this now because uh, it's happening now, but it's going to keep happening and I want to talk about it more on the show and we'll figure out how. But I, I really want to draw people's attention to the incredible coverage the Globe and Mail is doing on a couple of different files that both involve young Indigenous men and the justice system. Specifically, reporter Joe Friesen has shed so much light on the Colton Bushy case, this tragic story of uh, this really young guy who was with a bunch of his friends and the circumstances are not so known, but he ends up getting shot in the back of the head, it seems, by farmer in Saskatchewan, Gerald Stanley. The press in this case is fighting back against a counter-narrative because when the RCMP put out their press on this, they shrouded it in this kind of implication that uh, the buddies who Colton Bushy was was driving with, they were somehow associated with, with theft charges or something, or, or sus- they were suspected. There were never any charges. They were never arrested. But it was just enough to throw into people's minds like, well, okay, yeah, he got killed, but who knows what they were up to. It's just enough doubt that people, I think, just they just conclude they don't have to care about the fact that this young guy got killed. So what Joe Friesen did is he got his hands on the RCMP's own ITO, the Information to Obtain a Warrant. So this was the RCMP's own account because we don't know what happened. Was he in the middle of stealing something? And you know, and you know, it's still not clear whether they were on the farm to change a flat tire or if they had some other kind of mischievous. Uh, you know, that'll all happen in the corp. What is clear is. Uh, And I'll quote here, Gerald Stanley then agreed with the RCMP officer interviewing him that he, quote, went up to the driver's side window and shot the male driver once in the head and killed him. And the autopsy was shot in the back of the head. It reads like this kid was just murdered. And that's just me interpreting what I read in this article. And we wouldn't know that if not for this report in The Globe, which also tells us that after Colton Bushy was killed, uh, Lisa Stanley the farmer's wife said to Colton's girlfriend, Kiora Watani, that's what you get for trespassing on private property, according to Kiora Watani. Then another story from Joe Friesen about this, which it just gets worse and worse. The car where he was sitting, where he was shot and killed, where he was shot in the back of the head while he was sitting in the car, once it was taken to police custody, somehow ended up, they broke the chain of evidence and it ended up in a salvage yard before independent forensic tests could be done on it. So uh, you can see where this is going. Like, is this guy going to walk? just collectively sigh? Yeah. 
it seems the Globe was the first to even know about that, that this was just sitting in, in a yard where anybody could come and tamper with a car before it could be independently tested for evidence. So uh, this is a horrible story about the justice service system just doing an incredible disservice to this dead, young Indigenous man. Meanwhile, the Globe has also been writing about another young Indigenous man who is in jail, Adam Capay, who has been in solitary confinement for four years. That's torture. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, I think it's torture. And he's, tw- he's got 24-hour lights on as well, I believe. Yeah, he's in a plexiglass box with the lights on. By the UN definition of torture, this is torture. By the Supreme Court's own rules about, like, we have a right, this is like a fundamental, uh, you, you can probably tell me more about this in the history of this, but we have a right to a speedy trial. We do. And that there's a specific time period placed on that. He's outside of that. Well outside. And this is all about a murder trial for somebody he killed while in custody. So you hear about these terrible stories where somebody's in jail for some lesser offense, and then once they're in the system, it just gets worse and worse and worse. So the Globe is not only covering this, but the Globe editorial board, who usually just write these meaningless missives, they let the chopper fly. And they wrote a fiery, righteous, glorious piece demanding that he be immediately released from solitary and that his murder charge be stayed because of the time that has passed. And this is the Globe and Mail. Like, I don't know what that's worth anymore, the editorial page pulpit. It's worth less than it used to be. But the one thing the Globe and Mail still has is they are still the Globe and Mail. Nobody else can call themselves, we are the Canadian paper of record. Okay, fine, I have my problems with that whole thing, but use it for something. And in this case, they're using it. And not just this guy's case, because there are hundreds of others who are in solitary confinement. And this is not about what they did. It's about the Their fact- treatment. Yeah, that's it. It's a, there's a crisis in the, in, the, in the jail system right now, and they're being put into solitary just because they can't be uh, sustained in, 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 I don't know, gen pop. I'm out of my depth here. And, and but this is all about resources, okay? And this is happening in our country right now. We're torturing people. This is the time on our episode where we thank our second sponsor, Casper, who are redefining the mattress game. They are challenging big mattress and they are putting out the perfect mattress. I sleep on one every night. It is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foam to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015, an award-winning mattress that will not disappoint. Free shipping is a big part of this. Anywhere in Canada, free shipping. You try it out for free for 100 nights. If you don't like it, they will pick it up and refund you everything. It is made in America, people. Check out casper.com slash CanadaLand. Use the offer code CanadaLand. You'll get 50 bucks off of the already quite fair and low price for a mattress of this caliber. Check it out. So D.I. wrote this uh, polemic, this screed in The Guardian. Did you happen to catch it? I did catch it. Do you mind just summarizing it quickly for people? So there was both an assessment of sort of the Canadianness versus the Americanness and a perception that we are the nice, fuzzy cousin or little brother, little sister to America, but everything is not sunshine and roses over here. And in examining that sunshine and roses portrayal, particularly through Justin Trudeau and his actions or lack of action. In some cases, and highlighting some of the things that haven't changed since the Trudeau government took over, and saying that we have a lot of work to do, and both that we fail to acknowledge the work that we have to do. Would you say that's fair? I would say that's fair, and uh, reflects everything but perhaps the volume of the piece. The headline was, uh, you think Canada's a progressive paradise? That's moose shit. That's moose shit. Yeah. 
good use of a Canadian term there. Thank you. Uh, what did you think of it before I address some of the blowback? When I started reading it, I started thinking more about my own perceptions about Canada versus America more than anything. As someone who's both traveled to the States and to Canada as a black woman, and my experiences about people thinking that Canada is more of a bastion of tolerance and having some experiences that would defy that experience or that perception. So, yes to it being moosh it. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm not saying we're, you know, we've got some good qualities, but thinking that we are necessarily better can be interpreted as, I'm going to go elk shit, moosh shit. <laughs> How do you tap There's so it? many animals. Sure. I'm not looking for, for you to, you know, yay or nay on it. I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm undecided. Yeah. I read it with interest. Thank you. So everything has turned up to 11. I'm stating things as, uh, you know, as loudly and as emphatically as possible. And uh, are you just trying to get a reaction? Of course I'm trying to get a reaction. I'm, I'm writing a, a screed. You're Jesse Brown. So I can't really claim any surprise. This was the idea that people would have extreme reactions to it. And um, I think the first thing about it is just that I've never had a piece of writing be so widely shared. I think it's probably like the most readers on anything I've ever written. It was like 40,000 plus shares. I don't know what that amounts to, but The Guardian has a, a massive global audience. Mm -hmm. As far as I can measure, uh, the popularity of the piece was just a lot of people around the world who have kind of like had their fill of the other narrative that I'm responding to. They've had their fill of the Trudeau memes and are like, oh, here's a fun, jaunty little acerbic antidote to that, or you know, however they want to describe it, but people who kind of enjoyed the exercise of the piece. And then there were a lot of Canadians who were like, Fuck you. You can you can move if you don't like it here, which is great. I'm very yeah. happy to get that ignorant response. Um, that's exactly kind of in the crosshairs of this piece and people saying, well, that may be true, some of these things you're saying, but we're still better than X, Y, and Z. Like, that is exactly who I want to annoy. But why do we need to compare ourselves to anyone? Shouldn't we just be saying, this is what's broken in our country, let's fix it, not we are better than X or worse than Y? Yes. We all know what's wrong and what's right, I would hope so. You know, you know, we have work to do with the environment. We have work to do with our indigenous communities. We don't need a comparison necessarily to acknowledge that. It doesn't do us any good at all to count. We're, we're so obsessed with these lists of countries that are worse than us and where we like it is zero value. Like, in fact, I think it's actually destructive because it just is an excuse to not improve anything, which right. is how I think most people feel, which is why I wrote the piece. So both of those responses uh, are fine. We're anticipated. And I wouldn't be going through this self-indulgent exercise of talking about the piece just to note those two responses. But within the journalistic bubble uh, of my Twitter universe that I spend too much time on, there were a lot of people with their red pens out saying, yeah, but you can't get your facts wrong. You can't just make shit up, Jesse. There actually was one mistake in the piece. I said that we were the third largest arms dealer in the world. It turns out we're the second largest arms dealer to the Middle East. And uh, I realized my mistake when it was pointed out. And then I emailed my editor like, no, 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 I got that wrong. So that's the correction that I brought to the Guardian's attention. And it's the only correction because the other stuff that people had a big problem with, I got no problem with. And yet a lot of people who listen to the show, people who even agree with the piece were like, I think you got this stuff wrong. So I just want to address how I got to where I got. Okay. Will you help me with that? How would you like me to help you with that? By reading some of the critical tweets and then I can respond. Okay. This is it's like I'm on Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> Except they're not about me. Please proceed. <laughs> Here's a tweet by Andy Pandopoulos. It says, Northwest Mounted Police. Always had horses, idiot, Jesse Brown. 
Think Canada is a progressive paradise? Thank you, Dee. Th- that's the most common uh, correction, I guess, that people uh, were confused by or felt that I was just wrong about uh, when I said in the piece that our iconic Mounties, the only reason that they're on horseback is to trample labor protesters. Now, it is absolutely true that the precedent to the RCMP, the Northwest Mounted Police, were mounted. And this is the the origins of that iconography. I know this stuff because we, we've been researching it for the book. I am no uh, Canadian historian. But we've been looking into this. And we've been finding crazy stuff. And what we found is, yes, we had these Mounties back in the frontier times in Alberta and Saskatchewan. By the time of the First World War, they're not really needed to like stop horse thieves anymore. And in fact, they are sent off as a military battalion, the Boer War and then World War I. And during World War I, Alberta and Saskatchewan don't miss them much. Their actual provincial police forces and, and municipal police forces are doing just fine. And this federal mounted police force, there's no uptick in crime or anything like that. And when the Mounties come back, they're, they're sort of a, a shadow of what they once were. They're diminished. And there's even a, a question of uh, getting rid of them. Prime Minister Robert Borden considered just abolishing the Mounties in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Instead, after the Winnipeg General Strike, where the Northwest Mounted Police came in on horseback, fired live ammunition into the into the crowd, killed a couple of guys, uh, the decision was made to amalgamate the Dominion Police, who were not mounted, with the Northwest Mounted Police and create a federal mounted police force. And specifically, if you look at the rationale for this, it had to do with the fear of Bolshevism, of immigrants, of the rising labor movement. So I say in my emphatic overstated terms that the reason why they're on horses, for practical purposes outside of the iconography, but what I say is the reason they're on the horses is to trample protesters. And I think that that's pretty much true. And we'll put up the sources to that on the website. Can you read the second tweet, Dee? Sure. Ezra Levant says, Jesse Brown, is there anyone at Canada Land who can fact check your column, like your anti-Alberta error to start? Uh, and I apologize for asking you to be the voice of Ezra Levant, Dee. <laughs> um, so what Ezra is talking about there is that I say in the piece that the oil sands produce more carbon emissions than the state of California. Many people said, what are you talking about? Uh, the emissions from oil extraction is like a sixth of what the state of California puts out through their pollution. Yeah, that is if you use the numbers that only count the extraction process, okay? We don't just extract oil and leave it in a factory. We extract it to burn it. When you burn it, it lets off carbon. That is the the sum total, the life cycle of a barrel of oil. Like That's what this. my chemistry degree tells me. There you go. Here it is. An average standard barrel of crude oil has wheel-to-wheel, the full life cycle from extraction to combustion, carbon equivalent emissions of about 487 kilograms of greenhouse gas emissions. And people say, like, that's not how it's counted, Jesse. Like, we don't count the burning part. We only count the extraction, to which, like, that actually sounds crazy to me. Like, that's what this is for. You extract it and you release gases in the extraction process. It only exists to be burned, and that goes into the atmosphere as well. You add all that up and we edge out California. That's the rationale there. All right. Put up some math links. Okay. Let's <laughs> prove it with science. <laughs> Number three. Emmett McFarlane says, holy God. And he's got the bullshit about the $36 billion cut to healthcare in there too. So in 2011, the Harper government announced that they were reducing health funding by $36 billion. And this was... Paul Martin had established this schedule, this formula for how healthcare funding would increase over the years. It's got to increase year by year. And it was taken down, I think, from 6% to 3%. And when that happened, when the Harper government said that they were going to cut this back, 
and it was figured out that this was going to be a $36 billion cut, liberals, including Ralph Goodale and Scott Bryson, both described that as a cut. So when Harper did it, it was a cut. Then Trudeau comes into power and they announced that they're going to leave it the way Harper had it. So in the piece, I say they're still cutting $36 billion from healthcare, just like Stephen Harper did. Does it count as cutting if it never came into effect? That's an interesting question. And I think that uh, I can see the other side of that. Because to me, a proposed increase that doesn't take effect would not count as a cut. Well, the proposal was accepted and then the proposal was cut. But That's different from funding being cut. That's different from funding being For cut. For me, existing funding being cut. I may have been a little bit cheeky there in that I was quoting Ralph Goodale and Scott Bryson, who are members of the Trudeau cabinet. And if they call it a cut, if it's a cut under Harper, then I think it's fair to throw that back at them and say, you guys are keeping that cut. If people want to say, well, as you suggest, it's not a cut because it never existed. I get that. But right. I still feel like in a piece of persuasive writing as I was writing, I'm very comfortable describing it as such. To be fair, but if they were wrong and you're wrong too then you're both wrong about calling it a cut. I can accept that. I'll tell you what, when Ralph Goodale and Scott Bryson agree with me that it was never a cut in the first place, I will call The Guardian and tell them to add a correction to that piece. (laughs) Dean Rodri. Yes. That's your Canada Land Shortcuts. Thank you. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me anytime. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send and I respond when I can. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. D, where can people find you? They can find me at D Rodrique on Twitter as well. D-E-E-R-O-D-E-R-I-Q-U-E. Our website is CanadaLandShow.com. Our crowdfunding site where you can support us, even if you don't agree with me at all, is Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. I make this show with Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by Russell Gregg. If you like what we do, please support us.